listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hey, Sarah. Hi, Michelle. And welcome to Belaboured episode 257. In this episode, we bring you a panel discussion about labor journalism from the World Transformed Conference in the UK. But before we start, we'd like to remind you that if you appreciate our independent labor journalism and want to support our work, you can contribute to our small production team by going to our Patreon and becoming a patron. That's patreon.com slash belabored. You can get some swag with your donation created by artist-activist Molly Crabapple exclusively for Descent Magazine. And you'll also have the satisfaction of being a financial sustainer of our coverage of underreported labor issues as the podcast enters its second decade. And now, the news. Workers at the Starbucks Roastery in New York City scored a significant win for their union when Starbucks settled an unfair labor practices case at the National Labor Relations Board. NLRB prosecutors had alleged that Starbucks unlawfully retaliated against baristas at the roastery for organizing. The workers, who are represented by Starbucks Workers United, that's an affiliate of the Service Employees International Union, filed the complaint in July, alleging that they had been subjected to retaliatory discipline from management. Although the NLRB unfair labor practices process is known for being an extremely weak enforcement tool and usually leads to only weak penalties, the settlement does show that Starbucks has effectively backed down against charges of labor law violations in this one instance. According to Starbucks Workers United, this is the first ever settlement between the union and the company of a pending unfair labor practices case before the NLRB. And the settlement agreement stipulates that, quote, certain unwarranted disciplinary actions will be removed from employee records, unquote. In addition, the company, which is named in the settlement as Siren Retail, a Starbucks entity, will have to post a notice of the settlement in the employee break room. And the agreement also contains pro forma language explaining that the settlement, quote, does not constitute an admission of wrongdoing, liability, or violation of the law, unquote, by the company. More settlements may be on the way. Currently, the National Labor Relations Board has registered more than 320 unfair labor practice charges brought against Starbucks by unionizing workers, and 30 formal complaints have been issued by NLRB regional offices. I spoke with Lee Keto, one of the roastery employees involved in the case, about what the work has been like while these charges are pending and what the settlement shows about the nationwide movement to unionize Starbucks. I've been with Starbucks for just short of a decade. I've been at the New York City Reserve Roastery for about coming up on four years. In February and March, I had about two and a half years of tenure at the roastery. We had went public with organizing um, and like filing our petition and everything. And like a week after we went public, um, I got my first written warning. And then a month after that, I received a final written warning. Um, And Starbucks's write-up policy is supposed to be about progressive discipline, so coaching conversations, multiple written warnings, and then like leading to a final written warning. Um, and it was just like, first written warning, now you're on your last one. Um, so I filed an unfair labor practice, and we're here many months later. Um, we settled with Starbucks. Um, and the NLRB ruled that they have to expunge my first written warning, and then my uh, final written warning gets lowered to just a regular um, written warning. 
um, which is like a, a just makes my heart so full. I saw um, the posting that they have to put up and it just felt like a huge win for us. We did a, a March on the Boss um, and we did like a union t-shirt solidarity day. Um, and as we take more of these actions and management tries to push back, there's definitely a, a different dynamic. I have um, a few managers that don't talk to me unless it's absolutely necessary. Um, the managing director um, is like a super charismatic, very personal, bold person. Um, and after our mar- march on the boss, she wouldn't even like make eye contact with me and she would like barely say hello. Um, and I think there's also this sort of fear from managers, which is like sort of a win in our book, because um, that's what you want, um, that as employees, we're just not going to like be scapegoats and we're going to stand our ground um, and continue fighting for like the better rights that we deserve. I think that people are watching what's happening nationwide. Um, I went into um, a non-Starbucks coffee shop and I was wearing my um, Starbucks Workers United pin and ended up having like a 40 minute conversation with a couple of folks about how they've been watching everything that's happening. And it's really inspiring, um, especially with like workers in the coffee industry and folks in like the food industry and hospitality and like restaurant work in general. Um, So I think people are watching and we're in a, a place where the the labor movement is the strongest it's been in like decades. That was Lee Keto, a roastery employee and Starbucks Workers United activist. You heard a couple of episodes ago from Adam Rizzo of the Philadelphia Museum of Art Workers Union about their one-day warning strike. But the warning is over and the battle is on. The workers have been on strike for about 18 days as I record this on October 13th, and they have been holding an ongoing picket at the doors to the museum. A picket crossed by scab art handlers who installed the new Matisse exhibit, as well as a flock of journalists to whom the museum's new director, Sasha Suda, acknowledged the ongoing strike for the first time. Peter Crimmins at WHYY reported that she told the assembled reporters and art critics, I know that unions can and will work in partnership with management to ensure a thriving institution that's also a safe and sustainable employer. We'll get there in time. I can only hope that the coming days will bring us together and that we can all reflect on the past few years as an immovable block of history. An immovable block of history? whatever that means. The strike began on Suda's first day at the museum, and she has never directly addressed the union. The union, meanwhile, used Suda's arrival and the launch of the new Matisse exhibit as a rallying cry, chanting, no justice, no peace, no contract, no Matisse. Rizzo, meanwhile, told Crimmins, quote, they maintained that the installation is on schedule, and they were able to get the show hung on time and without interruption. They did that by hiring scabs from outside. I am personally concerned for the museum's relationships with lenders moving forward based on what they did, end quote. The museum has had to shut down comments on its social media, according to Hyperallergic, because they were flooded with comments supporting the striking workers and urging the museum to give them a fair contract. 
The union notes that support in Philly, which is, of course, a heavily union town, has been strong for the strike, that museum goers have canceled their museum memberships, donated to the strike fund, and refused to cross the line to attend the museum. The museum, though, is planning a gala opening for the Matisse exhibit on October 20th. No word on how they plan to do that without staff, but the union is planning for a presence at the gala if there is no contract by then. We will, of course, keep up with this and other museum workers' unions here on Belaybird. Undocumented immigrants are generally not legally authorized to work in this country, but through a quirk in the law, they can legally work for federal immigration authorities. This rather ironic situation recently came up in a Ninth Circuit appeals court case in which a lawyer for the private prison firm GeoGrew contended in oral argument that Geo's detainees should be exempt from Washington State's minimum wage law. The argument cited another case in which the Fourth Circuit Court held that immigrant detainees are not employees under the Fair Labor Standards Act and therefore do not qualify for the rights and protections mandated by that federal law. In addition, GEO argued that the minimum wage standard should not apply in the wake of a recent court ruling that struck down a California law that would ban private immigrant detention centers. That ruling stated that state governments could not interfere with the operations of federal detention centers. GEO argued that by extension, their detention centers also shouldn't be subject to state labor laws. These arguments come in response to a landmark decision in a lawsuit brought by detainees who had been forced to work for egregiously low wages in GEO's 1,575-bed Tacoma Detention Center. Last October, a federal jury found that GEO violated Washington's minimum wage laws by paying the detainees just $1 an hour to do maintenance and custodial work throughout the facility. Detainees did cleaning work, laundry, dishwashing, and even staffed the library in the facility. GEO Group argued that they were allowed to pay them just $1 an hour because federal regulations authorized them to do so. But the jury in that case ruled that the company was still subject to the minimum wage laws of the state, which mandated that workers be paid at least $1,369 per hour. And that meant that the workers would be owed tens of millions of dollars in back wages. It seemed like a labor victory for them, but one sad upshot of the case was that GEO simply suspended its work program in response to that case. And the facility ended up suffering from neglect and unsanitary conditions because they could no longer employ the detainees to do the cleaning and maintenance work at those extremely low wages. Detainees have also since complained that after GEO decided to cut off the work program, they've gone from having extremely low wages to having no wages at all. According to onlabor.org, quote, detainees also say that the pulling away of the $1 an hour wage, as meager as it was, has prevented detainees from being able to afford buying food to supplement what many have described as inadequate meals provided by the detention center. Something that may be worth noting, which has been lost in some discussions of these cases, is that many, if not most, of the detainees in these facilities lack work authorization. Thus, classifying them as employees in order to compel payment of the minimum wage may result in the loss of any wage at all for the majority of these workers. For those concerned with the conditions of immigrant detainees, including detainees without work authorization, this fact raises the question of whether such litigation has a net positive or negative effect for the welfare of detainees, and whether a better strategy might be calling for legislative or executive action action to require federally contracted immigrant detention centers to pay the detainees the minimum wage, to provide a system of temporary work authorization to immigrant detainees, and to improve the conditions and offerings in such facilities such that detainees are not forced to do quote-unquote voluntary work in order to have enough food, personal hygiene products, and other basic necessities, or better yet, the end of immigrant detention altogether, unquote. One of the core questions here is whether a private prison company that runs an immigrant detention facility on behalf of the federal government can be regulated under state or federal labor laws at all. 
According to the Associated Press, Washington's Attorney General's office argued in the Ninth Circuit Court that, quote, the recent decision reinforced GEO's obligation to pay the minimum wage by distinguishing between the federal government, which cannot be regulated by states, and private companies that contract with it. And it explicitly recognized that there is considerable room for states to apply generally applicable laws against federal contractors, unquote. Advocates for immigrants' rights might argue that under the current conditions of detention in the immigration system, any type of work that detainees are doing in order to maintain their facilities is inherently coercive. And of course, many people want to abolish ICE and abolish the detention system altogether. But to the extent that we currently have a large detainee population in this country that is severely deprived of resources, at the very least, giving them the same rights and protections as workers on the outside to the greatest extent possible will make the system a little bit more humane. And it would, by extension, force the government to acknowledge what has been a longstanding open secret in America's relationship with labor migration, which is they want to work and this country will find work for them to do, even as it systematically denies them their humanity. Workers at one of Scotland's biggest resorts have won a major victory in what continues to be an exciting string of hospitality victories for Unite the Union's hospitality organizing. This August, the workers got organized to demand a democratic distribution of money collected by the Cameron House Resort as, quote, service charges. And I spoke with one of those workers about their win. Hi, my name's Julie Nixon. I work at a resort hotel called Cameron House on the banks of Loch Lomond in Scotland, and I'm an assistant sommelier there, so I'm involved in all the wine service. We had noticed that there seemed to be a change in the amount of service charge and gratuity payments that we were getting. Uh, mm-hmm. And we did contact management on several occasions, people from, from different restaurants within the resort, and were never really given a straight answer. So um, we kept pursuing this uh, and never really got any clear answers whatsoever. And at that point decided that the only option was to uh, involve Unite the Union. And so what was going on when you got into the organizing? What did you find out was going on with the service charges? Well, previously what had happened when the resort had reopened after COVID, each outlet of which there's quite a number across the resort, there's different bars and restaurants, and each outlet actually uh, retained its own service charge uh, and gratuities, and that was paid out to the employees within that outlet. And after the change, as I say, we couldn't get any answers. And what was going on was that they were retaining um, 15% of the service charge in the first instance to pay out to all of the employees. So all the employees, including the ones that weren't food and beverage, which was there's about 250 employees in food and beverage within the resort and another 250 who work, say, in, in sales or marketing and they were going to be getting 15% of that service charge as well, which is a 10% amount that's added to each bill. Prior to that as well, and, and this has always been the case at this resort, they retained all credit card tips that are over and above the service charge. Um, they've always retained those throughout the year, and then they were paying them out in December again to everyone on the resort, even if they didn't work in food and beverage. So they were basically calling it a service charge on the bill, implying that it would go directly to your server and then using that to pay wages. Well, they weren't actually paying wages with it. They were using it to to fund a Christmas bonus uh, Mm. to all employees. So in effect, we were paying for our own Christmas bonus, but we were also paying for the Christmas bonus of everybody else on the resort. 
<laughs> and that was why they were so evasive and why we never, ever got a straight mm-hmm. answer. And we had to take it to a formal grievance with the union's backing to even get answers. So how did that process go when you were um, getting organized on this? Like, sort of walk us through the process with getting involved in the union and, and filing grievance. Well, to be honest, I came from a different industry. This is my sort of first foray into food and beverage. I worked as a flight attendant for 33 years, so uh, which is a heavily unionized industry. So I was always very, um, you know, I've always had that that backup from the union. Or I was in a culture where if there was any issues, you went to the union and asked, like, what should we do here? And they had your back for that. So I was so surprised when I moved to hospitality. And in the UK, only 10%, I think it is, of employees in hospitality are in unions, which to me was really shocking because it's an industry that is absolutely crying out to be unionized. Um, right. And they really need that support. So I contacted uh, Brian Simpson at Unite um, and I chatted to him about it. And he said, yeah, I think we'll, we need to try and get as many people joined up as possible. And we will take this to a formal grievance. Normally what happens is you first sort of try with a something informal and I said well we've all sent emails and asked questions and had no responses so then we got a lot of signatories uh, and he then put that grievance in in process. I understand you won a, a pretty significant settlement. Yeah we did so what's happened now is after um, the grievance process we then we're still, we got some answers as to where the monies were going uh, but then there was still a lot of pushback from the company I would say to maybe manage that <laughs> when in actual fact we really just wanted to say that you know it's it's our service charge and our gratuities and we'd like to have a, a democratic approach to how that is given out so uh, that went on for quite some time it was several months uh, but in the end up it was we've just had a vote and each outlet was able to decide how they wanted that money distributed Excellent. And so going forward, how is that, what is that going to look like? What is the sort of process that you figured out for doing that? So it seems uh, interesting. Yeah, well, what's going to happen with the, with the amounts that were collected because the credit card tips have been collected for the whole year because they traditionally had went to a Christmas bonus and the 15% that had been sort of skimmed off the top as well. That's all been retained and that will now be paid out in lump sums this month to all the employees. And uh, we sort of voted on going forward, how we'd like those monies distributed. So they're going to now go out on an hourly rate within each outlet. And it's all been agreed. It was voted democratically and everybody seems happy with that result. It's interesting. Obviously, a lot of service workers here in the U.S., we only make tips. Um, when I was working in restaurants, it was we got $2.13 an hour and then everything else was tips. And that hasn't changed, even though I have not worked, thankfully, in hospitality for quite a few years. So it's interesting to sort of look at the, the difference and that the problems are the same even when you don't have the so-called tipped minimum wage. Yeah, we, so we have a... The, a lot of the employees, that's the issue, a lot of them are paid the minimum wage and they're quite, I'm sure you know, having worked in the industry, it's often very unsociable hours. So people do that job because there is that opportunity to make extra money with tips and, and service charge. Uh, so really it's not for the company to to see how where that money goes. It's really for the employees because they are the ones who've earned it. So I think it was just getting that across. And I think legislation in, in the UK is going to change and um, at the moment, as far as I'm aware, they do have to give the service charge to the employees, but it's how it was being given. So, you know, it's um, 
now that we've got that sort of democratic process and we will now maintain the committee, the committee will now continue forward and we'll meet every so often and just check is everything on track? Is this still what we want to do or do we want to change things up a bit? Um, so we'll now have that control that we didn't have before. Yeah. Yeah. And this seems like a useful model that you can use for other complaints that might come up in the workplace. Yeah, absolutely. Because there's the, the, the other issues that I've kind of noticed, um, you know, maybe someone does a late shift and then they're rostered on an early shift the next day. Now, by law, they're supposed to have 11 hours in between um, so that you can go home and get some proper rest. And I can see that that's not happening in a lot of instances. And I, I think, you know, you know, that's not really acceptable. And sometimes it's just... Um, someone not paying enough attention when they're when they're doing the rota to make sure that you know people on late shifts are not on a, a very early shift the next day so I think all these things are it's where the union plays such a big part because you can sort of check uh what you say sort of maybe legalities with them and uh also get a better understanding of how things should be yeah absolutely um anything else you think our listeners should know about the the organizing process here or um unionizing the hospitality industry? Broadly, I would say join the union. <laughs> you know, I think, I think in the first instance, it's funny because coming, like I said, from the airline industry, people looked looked frowned upon the fact that if you weren't a union member, they'd be like, "Well, why aren't you a union member? What's wrong with you?" Whereas, I found the complete opposite when I came to hospitality. It's like a union member. Oh no, no, we can't do that. You know, so they approach it from such a different way, and I'd like to see that not be the case, and people understand what what, what the union stands for and how. It can benefit them and it's not something to, you know, they're not coming in with a big a big mallet and bashing people, you know, on the head. Like <laughs> after the employee, it's about getting a, a common ground and an understanding and fairer work practices, which I think is so crucial, especially for people. A lot of them are young as well. And I think that's where companies can take advantage to an extent where they've not had the life experience and they're, they're reluctant to speak up um, and stick their head above the parapet, you know, uh, whereas I didn't feel like I was in that position. I'm, a, you know, much older and I felt it was having come from a different industry I was quite confident to do that. That was Julie Nixon, a worker at Cameron House and member of Unite Hospitality. A couple of weeks ago on September 25th I was in Liverpool in England to take part in the World Transformed Festival, a political gathering that occurs alongside the Labour Party conference to bring together the British left with allies and supporters, discuss strategy and tactics, and generally remember that, well, everyone's on the same side here, we think. As part of the conference this year, I was on a panel about labour journalism, specifically the death of labour journalism in Britain and how to revive it. The panel was convened and facilitated by Emiliano Melino, a journalist for the Bureau of Investigative Journalism and who writes the Week in Work newsletter, and it featured me, Nicholas Jones, who was a BBC industrial and political correspondent for 30 years and covered the major strikes and labor unrest of the Thatcher decade, and Polly Smythe, whose work you have heard mentioned on this show before, and who is Novara Media's labor movement correspondent. She previously worked as a freelance writer, mainly covering the gig economy. We thought it would be a good idea to bring this panel to our listeners, and the participants were eager to share it with a broader audience. I should note we were thrilled with how much interest there was at the festival itself. We had a full room and had to bring in more chairs from outside. And as belabored listeners know, we are passionate about reviving labor journalism here. Thank you again for all of your support. So we hope you enjoy this edited recording from our panel. 
So um, to kick off, um, I think it's important to get the, the historical context, and I want to first pass to, to Nick. I mean, Nick, uh, for those of us that weren't around, uh, or at least weren't politically aware in the 70s and 80s, um, when really industrial reporting was, was at its peak in the UK, um, can you give us a, a sense of how prevalent industrial reporters were, uh, how they were regarded, and, and how they contributed to, to daily news coverage? Uh, well, there's no doubt that um, it's important for people like me to just recall what it was like um, in the 70s and 80s, because I was an industrial correspondent, a labor correspondent. Um, there were a whole team of us working for the BBC. Before that, I'd been on a local paper, the Oxford Mail, and we had three industrial correspondents just on one evening newspaper. That was a, a an indication um, of the significance that was placed on reporting what was happening in employment and uh, also uh, in trade union affairs. So in the 70s and the 80s, there was a core of industrial correspondents who provided a balance to the propaganda of the conservative newspapers. The danger that we have today is that there isn't a core of educated, when I use the word educated, I mean educated in the sense of understanding trade union issues. So this is why I think it was very important for you to hold this event and to call on people like me to just remind people that there was an era when we had the propaganda of equivalent nature to what we're getting today, but the big difference is that we haven't got um, that informed reporting that there was back then. But I know those are issues that you want to explore. Well, actually, why don't, why don't we take up, uh, continue from there? How big was the group of industrial reporters? What was the scale? Well, if, if you were taking the BBC, for example, uh, I was a radio correspondent, and we had four of us reporting for BBC Radio. There were three for national television. There were also, of course, regional correspondents. All of the local, weekly, and regional newspapers had industrial correspondents. As I said, I was one of three on the Oxford Mail. Now, the importance of this was that they were reporting what was happening, and that information was moving its way up the news media chain to the national newspapers. Now, then, the failure of today, and I, we're going to come on to it in a minute, uh, I mean, what so worries me uh, is that we're getting very, very little informed reporting of what's actually happening out in the workplaces up and down the country. Now, we don't want to preempt the discussion we're going to have, but just if I just throw into the air, if you think of what's happening on the railways, well, we hear very little informed reporting uh, from the big rail depots as to what they actually think. If you take Royal Mail for a example, where there's this great decline in letters and increase in parcels. Well, what's the mood out in the postal depots? We don't know, and there is very little informed reporting. And that's my criticism of the reporters of today. Because if I was on the labor beat now, I would want to be out there talking to workers, talking to union representatives. But look, I don't want to steal the thunder of the two of the speakers. <laughs> Off you go. So one last question before we move on to the other speakers. Nick, can you tell us a bit when this group of reporters started to die off? Yes. When, when... Well, what, what happened is we were the victims um, of the Thatcher decade because what happened was that she, she was determined um, that uh, the trade union movement was going to be smashed. And she literally set about it in a grand fashion. And it was, of course, it was 
there was the movement to, of course, bring in legislation, which meant it more difficult for unions to hold strike actions, which put union money at risk, uh, which uh, closed down the closed shop. There was a whole raft of legislation brought in by Norman Tebbit. The other side of it, of course, was the breakup of the nationalized industries. And this is the reason we had the National Coal Board, we had British Rail, we had British Steel, we had the Royal Mail, we had all of these nationalized industries. Those were private, and the electricity and the gas, these were all nationalized industries. They all had agreements, you see, that ensured that there was union membership. So when Mrs. Thatcher comes into power, the level of union membership was 12 million. And Michael Foote, who was the employment secretary, the last Labour employment secretary of the, of the um, uh, Callaghan government, he said to me, the thing that I've done is I have helped the trade union movement secure um, what was called check-off, which meant that if you worked in these industries, your management encouraged you, the management actually encouraged you to become a union member. Now that's gone. So union membership has halved. And that, of course, is the reason why we have seen such a decline. And because strikes declined as well, after the miners' strike of 84-5, there were fewer and fewer days lost through strike action. And of course, people like me were being told, look, Nick, get, get a life, get a job. <laughs> the unions are finished. What are you doing talking about all this stuff? You know, it's over, it's over, Nick. And of course, the point was, because of nationalize of, of the privatization, we had something called private share ownership. You know, British gas was sold off, and every gas customer got some cheap shares. So the newspapers were filled with reports about uh, share ownership. And it then happened that the business correspondents took over labor reporting. Mm -hmm. Now, and of course they know very little about it in my opinion, now we find, because most disputes are in the public sector, we have political correspondents reporting about strikes, and they know even less. So what we've got, so what we've got is what I call Punch and Judy reporting. Mick Lynch up against Grant Shapps. You know, that's an enlightenment, isn't it? <laughs> and that's about the subtotal of the reporting, and that's the... What so upsets me is that there aren't people out there actually reporting what's going on. Thank you very much. I mean, that's really illuminating. It's with the loss of, of, of labor power, the, the importance of labor reporters fell away. Fell away. Um, it's funny, I, I, I was once a, a, a financial reporter for my sins, and uh, I worked in France for a bit. And the interesting thing is where there is more uh, labor power in France, for example, uh, a lot of the stories we had to cover uh, meant that we had to call up unions because there they had so much more power and there they could actually influence deals. I was, an, I was a mergers and acquisitions reporter and there you had to get the opinion of the unions because they had to be informed about a deal because of the laws, because of their work, works councils, they had to be informed about a deal uh, before the company publicly announced it. Um, so moving on, I wanted to ask um, Polly actually, you, you've been now covering the, the increase in industrial action um, and I, I also suspect that you've been following how other reporters have covered, how some of these political correspondents that uh, Nick uh, was talking about have, have been covered. Can you tell us a bit uh, what you think most mainstream news coverage is missing out uh, or, or getting wrong? Um, yeah, sure. I think one of the interesting things, which I know, Sarah, this is a big bugbear of yours as well, is, um, you know, you look at coverage and, you know, it's really easy to look at coverage that says, Mick Lynch, Union Baron, and go ridiculous, um, you know, ideological, anachronistic. 
But what you actually see kind of more often, I think, than Union Baron is Union Boss. Um, you know, and Mick Lynch is not a boss. You know, Sean Graham is not a boss, you know, in the same way that Keir Starmer is not the boss of the Labour Party. You know, they're democratically elected leaders. And I think that that is kind of quite insightful for me in terms of what is the biggest issues with kind of coverage is that you can spot the bad stuff really easily, but the smaller stuff that is actually kind of more nefarious, I think, is, is harder to, is kind of harder to see sometimes. Um, and for me, stuff like that, I think, is often because of the decline in industrial correspondence, what happens now is you tend to turn up kind of with the cameras when there's a picket. And so it seems like kind of disputes begin and end, you know, only at this moment of drama. Um, and so then you don't get the build-up, you don't get the sense of kind of why that's happened. Um, and also you often don't get a kind of very satisfying conclusion because it's like the picket's gone and the strike is over. Um, but, and, I, you know, and the thing that that does then is that it's really hard to spot kind of shifts in work that have led to increased activity. So, like, for instance, I think something that's been really underreported on is during COVID, um, there were a lot of labour shortages, which meant then um, that employers were, you know, working with fewer employees. And then they thought, oh, this is actually quite nice. You know, they're easier to control. There's fewer of them. We don't have to pay as many people. We'll just keep going. And so now you have mandatory overtime um, is like a big reason for a lot of the strikes that are going on. But when you turn up on the picket, you're not going to get that. Um, so yeah, I think that's kind of one of the big issues. Um, I think also one of the issues is not necessarily just how stuff is covered, um, but it's what's covered. Um, and there are so many issues that are really overtly labour issues, which just don't kind of come within the remit of, of um, union coverage. So for instance... Last year, um, I think in America, it was like striketober, whereas here we had um, the great resignation. Clearly a question about labor. You, know, you have this moment where people are quitting their jobs en masse. You have mass vacancies in hospitality and in retail. Um, the question there is, you know, is this a resurgent moment of worker power? Are we seeing um, you know, workers kind of flex that muscle and this is really important and kind of like useful for nascent union organizing? Or are you seeing the absence of organized labor at kind of a moment of crisis? But you didn't get that. You just got endless pieces on the great resignation, um, you know, without, without kind of thinking about it as a union quiet issue. Quitting, quite, quite quitting, exactly there. You know, and I think so is actually often um, we, we come to these trends not realizing they're about work or about unions because, yeah, we get them kind of in a strange way. And I think as um, trying to Nick earlier, I think, Kind of some of that is structural. Like Nick said earlier, there's something that I thought was so interesting, which was unions used to get you in to train the reps on how to talk to the media, um, which I think is fascinating because my job is basically unions not wanting to talk to me. <laughs> um, you know, and I think that's, that's structural because, um, you know, if you, you know, back in the day when you were reporting, um, it was much, you know, the strategy was the dispute, it was the strike. Whereas now, um, you know, sometimes... Not always, but strikes and have less power. Oh, there have been fewer strikes. And so now unions are kind of much more concerned about the narrative. You know, they're concerned about kind of um, the, the kind of strategy, the story. Um, and so obviously, as a journalist, you're kind of a, a bit of a, a cog because, you know, you, you, you want to say, you know, you want to kind of maybe not necessarily always toe the union line and say, why did you do that? You know, for instance, recently, like, why did you cancel the strikes for the Queen? Um, you know, was, was that a good decision? Um, but because you are dealing with... A much kind of, I mean, they're not that slick always, but like a slicker comms operation, it's kind of harder to get that story. So I think, you know, mainstream journalists 
are dealing with very different unions to the, you know, the unions that you were dealing with. Um, but yeah, I think mainstream coverage is, is, like we all know, really lacking both at its most obvious, but also kind of in these smaller ways, which I think is, yeah, it's like almost more insidious sometimes. Well, some of your coverage that I've read has actually also looked at the dynamics themselves of unions. So um, I was wondering actually, what, what's been the reception of that when you, because this is something that really, I mean, there's been some coverage of strikes by, you know, the political, the business reporters, but there's been very little coverage about what's happening inside unions. There's been very little coverage about um, why certain unions are the way they are, let's put it that way. And I wanted to just get a sense of, from you of, of what, your, what the reaction's been to, to that. Yeah, it's an interesting question. Um, and I think also it's funny, because I, so, you know, being at Navarra and kind of being at a, um, a left publication, it's funny because, you know, obviously I think with, when um, we've been having this big kind of like quote-unquote summer of discontent, everyone was saying, bring back the, you know, the Labour journalist, we, we need the Labour journalist. And then I wrote a piece recently that was um, a little bit critical of um, the RMT and CWU. Um, it voiced the um, criticisms of um, some workers about the cancellation of the strikes. And some people within the union were a bit like, no, you know, don't, 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 no, I mean, not quite, that's a bit harsh for me, but they were, they were kind of like, oh, well, you know, um, we, you know, we wish you'd spoken to some members who were pro the decision. And so it's like a kind of a bit of a weird thing because people wanted the Labour correspondent to come back, but like a Labour correspondent's role is not, you're not a union spokesperson, you know, I'm not there to, you're not there to cheerlead for the union. Um, you know, ultimately you are like accountable to the workers, I think, rather than the union. Um, and so it is it's a weird position to be in, to be covering unions on the left sometimes, because I think that um, there is a sense that you, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a tricky position sometimes to kind of make criticisms from. And so like, I wrote a piece about um, Azadol, which is the, um, like the supermarket workers um, union. And actually, um, Azadol marched up because they sponsored the Labour Party um, and they absolutely, they love Keir Starmer. Um, and so, you could, yeah, and basically they are, they're a really bad union. Um, <laughs> maybe those two things are connected. Um, but yeah, they're, they're, um, they're not a very good union um, and their members um, have been rejecting pay deals that the union are advocating for. Um, most recently at Morrison's, they, the union said that the members should accept a 2% pay deal. So that kind of is indicative. But it's funny, because when I criticised Azador, everyone was like, this is great, yeah, you know. And then when it kind of comes on to the unions, which have kind of... The cool got, unions. Yeah, the cool unions, yeah. The unions that have garnered a bit more popularity. It was a bit more of a difficult, a difficult criticism. It's important to be a critical friend, right? That's what the left was built on, critical friends, or, or maybe not. Um, <laughs> moving on to, to Sarah, you, you spent part of your time reporting in the US and part of your time reporting in the UK. And so I was curious, I guess, from kind of part of an in, part outsider perspective, part insider perspective, um, you know, the, the things that were identified by Polly and, and by Nick, uh, are they unique to the UK? Or is, this, or is this the issue in the States and elsewhere? Yeah, you can probably tell from my laugh that, like, no, they're not, right? The, the broad decline in labor journalism goes along with the decline in labor. And I wrote down in my notes while Nick was talking, and neither of those things were natural, right? Um, the decline of labor journalism goes along with the decline of working conditions for journalists. The newspapers have been cutting back on reporting. The BBC has been cutting back on reporting. I mean, the the... The thing that I find hilarious is when like, people I know are like, oh, I'm doing the paper review on the BBC at like 6 a.m. And I was like, so the BBC, instead of having somebody go out and do journalism, they have a bunch of people come in and read the front pages of The Sun and The Mirror and The Daily Mail. That's, that's, that's a thing you do? 
Okay. Um, so that they don't so much do in the US, but, or at least they're not so obvious about it, but that's still, you know. So the cutbacks have been across the board, um, other than in business, which the amount of business correspondence has gone way up. Um, and that goes along with journalism, um, or particularly newspapers and magazines becoming more and more of a lifestyle product for the rich. Um, sorry, not sorry. Um, so when we're talking about, like, I feel like a lot of my job is, as Polly was saying, to kind of be, like, the realistic person when, when people get real hype around this or that union, and it does not always make me friends. Um, but it's also kind of funny. I'm not going to name the union leader or tell you which country, but fairly recently in a contested election for the leadership of a big union, um, people reached out to me at first because they wanted me to cover this person who ended up winning. I did not have time to do it at the time. I was finishing a book. Um, and now I've been trying to get an interview with them since they're in power. And do you think they answer my emails? <laughs> um, and so that's a really interesting phenomenon too, right? The, the challenge of getting through to getting the interviews you want is also a constant sort of across countries. Um, and we were just talking before about wanting to do this panel with like other European reporters and find out where the industrial correspondent is still strong. But I think what's interesting for me actually is like I've been doing this for a while. I'm freelance, which means I write for everyone from the New York Times to the progressive and in these times and Novara, and basically whoever will pay me, and sometimes people who can't pay me. Um, and because I've written a couple of books now, and because the second one did fairly well, because mostly because it was a book criticizing you know, work at a time when work had gotten a lot worse for everybody, which is to say COVID, um, now I get the phone calls from the reporters who are trying to figure out what's going on. So like I've gotten so many emails and phone calls asking me to comment on quiet quitting and I'm losing my mind about it. But also it's been a useful moment for me to say like actually the labor movement has a long time had a term for this thing, which is work to rule, which is done most successfully when it's done collectively, when everybody in the workplace only works to the letter of the law, to the rules. And also, particularly in a lot of um, unionized workplaces, they will do everything that management says to prove that management doesn't know what they're doing. Um, to prove that actually the workers who do the work know much better about what they're doing than their managers who are sitting in an office somewhere. So, yeah, it's, it's interesting now to sort of get called in to interpret the workers to everybody else. Um, and I think just because I have the microphone in my hand, I also think this is sort of a problem on the left as people are kind of like, people tend to assume if they are not active in a union in their own workplace, that like the workers are some people who are over there and that the left and the people who attend things like TWT are the people over here. And we have to like bridge the gap between the two rather than think about our own working conditions. So just for like shits and giggles, how many people here are a member of a union? Yay! Um, good, because the last thing I want to say is that um, talking about the unions not really wanting to answer the phone is that one of the places where union labor journalism is strong is when Unions own the papers, and I think Nick can probably tell us a little bit more about uh, the history of, again, some of these tabloids, but unions could invest in journalism. That would be great. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, what you identify with the, the problem with your own profession 
and we can go later into our own union in our profession, at least in the UK, um, and the recent disputes. I think there's a, an issue linked to that, which is when journalists are working in very precarious conditions, they are going to basically take orders, uh, be more likely to take orders from editors in terms of what they should be covering. And that will affect the coverage and that will create poorer coverage. Journalists that are more economically secure will do better journalism. It's as simple as that. And this precarization of our profession has led in large part to this worsening of, of, of political coverage, of business coverage, of, of, and so on. And, and I think it's especially poignant in, 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 in local press in yeah. the UK. There are three companies effectively that own all the local press in the UK. Can I actually pick on this? You want to pick up on this? Yeah. Yeah? All right, let's pick up on this. Yeah, because you did ask me about sort of the difference between the US and the UK. And one of the things that's been happening, right, is that like working conditions have been so crap that we've seen a unionization wave in digital workplaces, but also in sort of old school media, legacy media that didn't have unions before. So the New Yorker magazine, also the Los Angeles Times. Um, and this is now helping our labor coverage because you get people, right, who know what work to rule is because they're doing it. Um, you get people who know what um, right to work laws, which is a particular American innovation that I'll explain if anybody really wants me to. Um, people know what those are because their managers are trying to inflict it on them in their contract. And that means I've got a lot more editors who like don't introduce errors into my stories, which is a thing that happens a lot. Um, it's happening less than it used to. <laughs> um, but also it means that you get young people like Kim Kelly. I'm sure some of you have read Kim's work. She writes at Teen Vogue of all places, among other things. <laughs> and Kim started off as a heavy metal reporter. And really she got in interested in being a labor reporter because she was one of the leaders of the union drive advice. Um, and now she is almost entirely a full-time labor reporter. I think every now and then she'll still do some music journalism for fun. So it really, you know, nothing radicalizes like workplace action, even for journalists. So hopefully that'll change the tabloids now, right? I mean, I, I was going to come onto this later on, but since, <laughs> since we're on it now, I, I, I'd like to ask the rest of the panel as well. I mean, in the UK, we've had Industrial Action at Reach PLC, which is one of the biggest owner, if not the biggest owner of regional papers, but also owns a lot of flagship titles, national titles like The Mirror, The Express, um, you know, it's not. It's a local, but it's also in a way a national, like Manchester Evening News, Liverpool Echo, and I think now Al Jazeera uh, journalists have been balloted for strike action. So, how, what does the rest of the panel think about how this increase in industrial action uh, by journalists will affect coverage, if at all? Oh well, I think it definitely will. I think you're quite right. I think there is a sort of um, a, a change of foot. You wouldn't believe it, but on the journey, I was on an Avanti train, and of course, as you know, Avanti are um, the the rail network that's um, troubled more by um, um, action currently than any other line. And I got a um, a message from somebody who says, "Hey, Nick, um, the BBC is going to appoint an industrial correspondent." No, no. Um, It'll be an offshoot from somebody in the business department. <laughs> have, you, have, you, have you got any advice on what, what, what sort of things? Because I've got, I've got an appointment board, and I thought this is fascinating. I couldn't make it up, could I? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Perfect timing for the panel. Uh, for, for the panel. <laughs> and, and I said to him, well, I said, look, I said, you, you, you've got two things you've got to do. You've got to think of some features which are going to explore what's going on at the moment. Now, we've, we've just mentioned the postal dispute, and we've just mentioned the rail dispute. Now, if I was um, out and about 
with a tape recorder again, I'd love to go um, to one of those big mail sorting depots and try and find out what the workforce really felt. What do the local union leaders really feel? Again, if it was a rail depot, I'd love, to, especially in the southeast of England, you see, they've lost a quarter of their commuter traffic. It's not going to come back. Now, does this switch to get the rails um, and more of the drivers working on Sundays because of the increase in uh, leisure traffic. So you can see there was real issues there. But of course, Polly hit on one of the problems, which is that the unions now want to control the message. So if I went out to the big um, postal sorting depot, there's a big one on the south coast at Southampton, which deals with all the mail along the south coast from Bournemouth through to Portsmouth. I don't suppose um, the union would be very keen on me speaking to anybody. And if we talk to the workers, you see, back in the 70s and 80s, I could actually talk to workers. Now, in most workplaces, people have to sign an agreement that they don't talk to journalists. So it's very, very difficult getting hold of frontline reporting. So when I hear, and we were talking about the um, political correspondents doing industrial stories, I mean, I'm, I, I feel sorry for them. You see, they talk about strike pay as being a slush fund. And I think, well, hang on a minute, I don't think Unison actually sees it, sees um, help f for low paid workers who might get a payment during, <laughs> during an industrial as a slush fund, but that's what a political journalist calls it. And you can see, um, that, that's why I hark back to the days. But I think you're right. I think the fact that it's now up the uh, agenda, the news agenda, might lead um, to some better standards among the journalists as well, and perhaps some action. And what about the fact that the journalists themselves, well, in some cases, the journalists themselves are going on strike? Well, that's, of course, that, 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 that of course, uh, creates, as, as Sarah said, that creates a, a greater uh, understanding of the issues involved. And, of course, they come up to themselves immediately, these barriers that I've described to you, which is that it's very difficult. You see, I used to be able to go out uh, to a car factory, and you could talk to workers. Now, if you ever look at the telly now, and there's a dispute, you'll see that most workers just won't even speak mm -hmm. to the media. They won't even acknowledge. They drive by in their cars. Now, it's not that they're, they, they don't want to help. It's just that they probably know that if they're caught on camera uh, giving a quote, it could be the end of their end of their jobs. So I think the journalists are going to understand more of those complexities and hopefully it will enhance the level of reporting. Yeah, and I do wonder the extent to which as well workers, uh, you know, they watch the media, they see the media and they, they see basically the general attitude that there is towards, towards people like themselves. I mean, I, I remember, I don't know if you guys remember, Allegra Stratton, uh, comms officer for uh, the previous Tory government, for, for Boris, Boris Johnson, Johnson. Uh, who uh, quit or was fired after laughing about the, you know, being caught in film laughing about the, the, the COVID uh, parties, uh, I guess we can call them, in, in Parliament, in, in, in number 10. Uh, she previously came to some of our attention because of an incredibly hostile interview she did. I think it was in ITN. I can't remember which of the ITN production companies, uh, which, which, which of the channels it was, an incredibly hostile interview towards a mother uh, on benefits. 
Uh, and it was in incredibly vicious. It was, she was holding her to account. You know, <laughs> you're supposed to be holding the powerful to account, not those. Uh, but you know, it was incredibly hostile. And I think people see that. People see these kind of hostile interviews towards working class people. Uh, and, to, and, and so obviously they will be suspicious of journalists. I think it's, it's pretty normal. So I guess the BBC's now caught on a bit that there's a need for more uh, industrial uh, reporting. But you know, uh, Navarra caught on to that fact a few months before. So Novara being ahead of the BBC, I just wanted to know, Paul, if you could tell us a bit about uh, how Navarra was trying to tackle the fact that there's uh, a decrease in industrial reporting and, and how that works, and, and if there are, you think there are other initiatives like this, or could there be other initiatives like this, and so on? Yeah, so I've only been in my role for three months, um, but like, I cannot think of a more <laughs> uh, know, busier three months kind of to be doing this role, yeah. But um, yeah, it's interesting. I think that there was a real sense that... that I mean, Navarra, Navarra is really interesting in that, you know, they're still quite, they're quite new, um, and I think that they really felt that there was a kind of a deficiency, um, you know, and that kind of that their engagement with workers, um, whilst the kind of intent was there, actually the ability to kind of have good and sustained engagement um, was, you know, they needed someone kind of full-time. Um, and I think that kind of gets to what we want Labour coverage to actually be. And, you know, I think they kind of had this sense that they could do, like, we went to the picket and the workers were great, you know, rinse and repeat for every dispute ever. Um, and, and I think they had, there's a sense that kind of like, yeah, you can do that, you know, but who is going to tell you what Royal Mail are saying in the boardroom, you know, um, who are going to tell you, you know, what is the, you know, what's the figure that RMT might settle for? Um, and I think they really felt that that was what was, what was missing. And, you know, and it, it, is, it is interesting, I think, that um, there's like a kind of... Um, tension in union coverage always because each dispute is massive and you know every time I do a piece I'll start and I'll be like oh you know um the or for instance like you know the the dock workers in Liverpool are on strike right now um you know and so like if you look in the media that's a the classic like paying conditions but you know that's actually like a you know fascinating strike United have been organizing that you know um for ages because since the 1995 dispute um all the dock workers were sacked um, replaced the agency workers terrible working conditions and then um two ex-dockers um have been organizing there um and you know so yeah so i think that um and then there's a sense that kind of that you know that's what they wanted to kind of be able to cover more um but yeah, I, I think in the US there's lots of um, kind of like substacks and there's lots of kind of more, um, <laughs> or there maybe not. I mean, like I feel I feel my role is to sort of say like US reporting is is better than for Sarah to contradict me, but. Um, but, yeah, in the UK, I really don't think... I mean, it's funny. When some, so, for the piece I wrote about Azador um, and about the Morrison's um, pay um, offer being rejected, um, you know, I was, I was using, like, random websites, you know, it was like www.socialistsorganise.com dot like something you know and some of the best reporting kind of some of the only reporting sometimes you know for, for industrial disputes is done kind of you know really on the fringes um and that's one of the things I think also is important about industrial reporting is that it can't come back overnight because you know it's um there's a whole there's like a real loss you know we lost um, when we didn't have those reporters you know like decades and decades of information and so now sometimes if you want to find out about a dispute it's actually really difficult you know when I got this job I kind of sat down and was like right I'm gonna I'm gonna prep I'm gonna learn I'm gonna go back and you know look at you know a dispute from 2004 um, with the RMT you know and it's just not there you know um it's, it's literally is not there and so it's very difficult, um, and I think that that will be difficult for kind of people who want to, you know, as we see increased industrial correspondence, I think it's going to be quite hard because you are coming up against 
you know, a genuine struggle and a genuine challenge. So you alluded there a bit to um, the next question I was, I was going to ask uh, Sarah, which is things are so much better in the US, right? <laughs> you got all the sub stacks. No, but, but, but seriously, seriously, you know, Why in the US, there is industrial reporting and, in, in, you know, from, from, you mentioned, for example, Teen Vogue had an industrial, uh, well, I think columnist rather, yeah, it was an industrial columnist or labor columnist. Uh, that's, you know, a, a, a teen fashion publication. But, you, you know, you also see it in you know, Bloomberg, Business Insider, uh, you know, the, the big financial press. And, you know, New York Times hired someone again after they fired someone? Did they bring someone back in New York that's Times? That's complicated. That's complicated. Okay. Well, tell us how complicated it is. And tell us, you know, <laughs> is, is the U.S. ahead? Uh, what can we learn from no. that? And uh, what, can some of, if, if, you know, the extent to which it is ahead of us, yeah. what can we learn from it? And what should we avoid? What should we be worried about? What pitfalls are there? So just for funsies, the thing I always have to say first is the U.S. union density is half what it is in this country, right? That's not raw numbers, that's density, that's per population. It is half. About six and a half percent of private sector workers in the U.S. are in a union. Um, The law is a bit different, obviously, but um, we're screwed. And the Starbucks campaign, which is doing the fastest organizing I have seen in my career, um, is still organizing... I think it has still total, when I did the numbers, fewer workers than that one Amazon warehouse that won. So that is total about 10,000 new members. Um, There are other campaigns that are happening too that are getting much less attention, but none of these are even close to the target that Liz Schuler, who's the new president of the AFL-CIO, which is our version of the TUC, um, set to organize a million new workers in a decade that will not actually if that happens, change the union density more than a percentage point. So like the degree to which workers are screwed in the US is actually really intense. Um, And what's happened interestingly is that the places where we are ahead, one of them is journalism, right? Because what we've seen is, not to plug my book, but like, One of the reasons that I wrote a book that is sort of one half about like low paid service and care work and one half about creative work is that those are the places we're seeing organizing happening. Um, You know, we're seeing surges in university worker action, both countries actually. Um, We're seeing surges in like grad student unionization, right? Um, Art museum workers are one of the big ones. The Philadelphia Museum is about to go on indefinite strike after doing a warning strike last week. And that's close to my heart because my sister used to work there and my brother-in-law worked there until about three months ago. Um, And then journalists, right? So these are professions where people thought and probably got an expensive education to do it. Um, thought that they were going to have a decent middle-class life and get there and find out that they're making $35,000 a year if they're lucky and having to pay New York City rents, which let me tell you how much New York City rent costs is often $35,000 a year. Um, So this... um, I often... You know, Americans don't like it any better when I say this stuff. Um, But I think it's really important... Because, as we've said, I think, over and over here, the importance of doing labor journalism, even in ways the unions maybe don't want you to do it, is to have a real honest understanding of what's going on out there. Where the power is, where the power isn't, who's actually winning, who's getting their asses kicked. And that is, you know, it is absolutely capable for me to be shocked. I was stunned that the Amazon Labor Union won in Staten Island. 
absolutely couldn't believe it. They did everything that like long-term organizers tell you not to do. Except the thing is they studied and they worked really hard at becoming good organizers. And that, well, that usually works. Um, so what lessons I think we have, um, let's see. So the places that have full-time labor staff reporters are mostly the business press. That is also true here, right? The FT has very good labor writers actually. Um, Bloomberg Business Week hired my friend Josh Idelson, who used to be the co-host of my labor podcast nine years ago. Um, other people, most of the people who have full-time jobs in the U.S. who are covering labor are straight white men or not so straight white men. Um, most of us who aren't straight white men are still freelance. Um, Teen Vogue, Kim's column is not even weekly. It's semi-regular. Um, even a lot of the liberal and left-leaning publications that are mostly my bread and butter, um, they are often, I have to do a lot of arm twisting to convince them that this or that campaign that I want to write about is worth covering. Um, a lot of that is because national, this is also a problem here, right, where like the story has to be sort of national and a local conversation, especially if it takes place outside of London or in the U.S., outside of Washington, D.C. or New York, most people are kind of like, that's not real. It's like, yes, it is. It's really real. <laughs> the rest of England matters, kids. Not to mention Wales, Scotland, and um, the north of Ireland, the occupied six counties. Um, so the, um, the, the question of like what you see and like the substance right, and social media, like, we, are, we can be quite loud on Twitter, but that is not actually paying the bills for, like, real reporting. Substacks and also columns and a lot of the things that these papers want are your opinion about something. Um, you know, every now and then, again, the New York Times will call me and be like, tell us what's going on with unions, and what they want is me to give them, like, a thousand-word op-ed with the broad strokes, they are not giving me the budget that they give to somebody who's writing a cover story. And the New York Times um, bought out Stephen Greenhouse, who is the longest serving labor correspondent in the US, and replaced him with somebody who had never been a labor reporter before. He does, however, look a lot like Steve Greenhouse. <laughs> because white men apparently are the only ones who are capable of covering labor. No offense to Nick. Um, and the thing is that like, the working class these days doesn't look like Steve Greenhouse, you know? And that, the question of who gets to write about it, um, where they went to school and how they learned about unions, were you in one, right? Um, did you work a lot of crappy jobs in the service industry like I did before you finally get to be able to do journalism full time? That affects how you do the coverage and how you do the story. Um, the experiences that you've had, both in the journalism workplace, but also before it, right? I first met Polly because she wrote this wonderful piece for Tribune during lockdown when you were working in, what, it was a grocery store, right? Mm -hmm. I'm just going to let you explain it, because it was really good. Um, yeah, <laughs> I was working in a grocery store um, during the pandemic, and um, I was a quote-unquote key worker, um, and, which is funny to remember, um, and sort of funny we don't, I guess, yeah. traumatic. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, and I was doing that for about a year, and um, when I was working there, 
um, I noticed that um, often we had customers who would come in who basically would stay for um, like extremely long periods of time um, and it became very apparent that essentially you know a lot of people had nowhere else to go um, you know and um, I, you know I started thinking about it because it was during lockdown so I was, you know I was masked up and I was it was quite early on so I was you know I was quite scared and I was handing um, it was like the plastic visors and I was handing someone some change back and this guy grabbed my hand and held on to it and then was like oh, I'm so sorry I just literally haven't touched another person you know in in, in months um, and it was a really interesting interaction because I kind of felt like you know I was a young woman working on my own um, on minimum wage um, it was a really bad job um, like horrible bosses um, and feeling like this is a kind of a labor rights violation but then also feeling like this this man had you know no else to go and no one else was responsible for him um, and yeah and then so then I wrote about that you know and then, and, um, and that kind of a lot of the stuff that I started out writing about kind of came about this feeling that, you know, the pandemic was really changing kind of the experience of work, you know. I, I'd, I'd had other retail jobs and they never felt like that. Um, and and that, that kind of wasn't necessarily being captured or that you couldn't make sense of other labour disputes without kind of realising that work was changing or what it felt like to work was changing. Um, and, yeah, and I think that was, like, that was very helpful for me and I, that's something I kind of try and carry through in my work now. Um, and I think it definitely makes me a much better reporter. Yeah, I mean, I think the other thing that we should probably look ahead to is what are the challenges that we're going to face? Because um, I, I, we're still digesting uh, what Kwasi Kwarteng, the uh, Chancellor, announced on Friday, because he's announced, you see, that the government is going to go ahead with the legislation that um, Liz Truss was proposing. I'm sort of doing a gear shift, but I'm going to come back to what, what uh, Polly and Sarah have been saying. But what the government uh, clearly is going to do is going to try to bring in legislation. And what it's saying, what Kortang said, was that he wants workers and, and union members to vote on every pay offer before strike action can take place. So if we take, for example, the current rail dispute, uh, the rail unions would not be able to call the strikes that are currently taking place. The union leadership say the offer isn't good enough. The government are saying it's got to be the members themselves that have got to actually have reached that decision. Now, where it impacts on the journalism is that, you see, what the government is wanting to do, it wants employers to have the ability to go over the heads of the union's leadership direct to the members, because the members are more likely to be influenced by what they see in the newspapers and uh, is picked up. Um, you know, on radio and television, and isn't properly investigated, and that's when you when you asked us, you know, what what is the responsibility of journalists now, and what more can we do? This is going to be a really telling point. You see, is whether the journalists who've been involved in disputes, you know, we've heard from Polly how she had personal experience. We've heard from Sarah about the experience in the states. Are the journalists going to actually see through? this ruse and realize that this is going to be a serious block on trade union activity. Because you see, we have to understand as well that uh, em employers now are, are very savvy about how to get their messages across. And they're going to rely on a compliant and supportive national news media. And that's what they've got. And the, text, the test is going to be, is the industrial action that you've been talking about that we're beginning to see among journalism and the realization among journalists, because we're in the front line, what's actually happening, is it going to actually affect the, the degree of coverage? So that's going to be, for me, someone who can look back and has experienced what happened in the 80s, because that's exactly what happened in the 1980s, you see. The government realized 
that, uh, and this was, we're talking about the miners' strike of 84-5, that they could go over the head of Arthur Scargill direct to the union members. And of course, they had big campaigns, you see, to uh, persuade people to accept early redundancy payment. And there were big campaigns that if you agree to uh, a redundancy payment and come back to work, because Mrs. Thatcher wanted to claim that half the men were back at work, then you can get an enhanced redundancy payment. And that is the sort of campaign um, that I feel we're going to get in the future. And I'm going to be you know, fascinated to see whether the journalists have actually clocked what's happening and are aware of it and will actually explain um, to people. Because my fear is, my fear is that um, the government, with the support of the, um, um, you know, a very compliant national media, are going to be able to get away with it again. So I think it's going to, uh, you know, it, it is more than ever going to be a test of journalism today as to whether we can actually inform people about uh, what's going on. And the same, you see, the, the government is saying they want to have a minimum level of service uh, in essential services during strike action. Now, that's going to be a fascinating discussion, isn't it, as to what is the minimum level of service. Is it 20 30%, 40% of the train service that's got to keep going? So these are going to be issues, which I think you're right, Emiliano. I think that this is going to lead to an upsurge in labor and industrial reporting. So I think that, you know, Polly's going to be, a, be even busier, <laughs> and Sarah too, and she'll be able, they'll be able to look uh, at the UK as yet another test bed um, uh, for future uh, reporting. You're listening to Belaboured, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. And that was a panel discussion on labor journalism from The World Transformed, featuring Emiliano Melino, Nick Jones, Polly Smythe, and our very own Sarah Jaffe. And now it's time for ARG, I wish I'd written that, in which we talk about the pieces that we read and liked, but did not write. My pick for ARG is In the WWE, Wrestlers Say Labor Abuses Are Everywhere by Tim Gill in Jacobin. It's an exploration of the labor conditions in the professional wrestling industry and the prospects for unionizing it. I remember when I was a kid, the World Wrestling Federation was a frequent source of entertainment for me and my older brother. Through the television screen, we could peer into a world of flamboyant costumes, theatrical, almost comical violence, and the ridiculously staged antics of the pro wrestlers, from repeatedly clotheslining each other as they flew across the ring to head-bashing each other with the foldable chairs. Over time, I came to learn that professional wrestling was quote-unquote fake, that the fighters were all in fact actors who weren't really beating each other up that badly every night. And as I grew up, I eventually lost interest. This was the kind of puerile, schlocky entertainment that every kid eventually grew out of. But professional wrestlers are in fact professionals. They may not be clobbering each other into a pulp in each fight, but their work is entertaining us. And to do those performances day in and day out, they need to exert themselves like athletes, travel constantly, and put up with tremendous pressure from fans and from the giant corporation that lords over them. That company, World Wrestling Entertainment, or WWE, has monopolized the U.S. professional wrestling industry and, under the leadership of the freshly deposed CEO, Vince McMahon, has created a workforce of wrestlers who work around the clock to keep audiences filling the arenas, buying their merch, and watching their broadcasted matches. 
The wrestlers might make a good chunk of change, but often it comes at the expense of their health and their family lives. Gill writes, quote, under WWE employment, wrestlers have faced a litany of physical injuries and mental health issues, as well as abused steroids or other drugs. As Dan O'Sullivan has pointed out, quote, the billion-dollar spectacle of pro wrestling relies entirely on the ruthless economic, mental, and physical exploitation of its performers, unquote. But in the past, when they've tried to organize, they've been thwarted by their higher-ups and to some extent constrained by the law. The wrestlers who have left the industry have recalled what Gill describes as, quote, a culture of fear throughout the company. Wrestlers remained fearful to speak up on any issue lest they find themselves released and blackballed from the company and possibly the professional wrestling world in its entirety. Indeed, the WWE exercises total control over its employees and has pushed them not to unionize. Despite such control, WWE wrestlers remain classified as independent contractors. As a result, WWE does not pay its workers health care or travel expenses. While the latter may seem trivial to some, WWE is on the road five days a week, every week, unquote. Like many in the entertainment industry, the company they work for is not legally their employer. So while McMahon amassed a tremendous fortune profiting off of wrestling exploitation, the wrestlers themselves have labored under extremely coercive contracts as so-called non-employees, and the lesser-known wrestlers have historically made a lot less than the top talent, such as Hulk Hogan. One former wrestler... Jim Brunzel, was Hogan's contemporary and estimated that Hogan raked in a total of about 10 times more than Brunzel did each week, including merch sales, and that he was, quote, making a significant portion of their gate sales as well as high commissions from WWE pay-per-views, unquote. The huge pay disparities prompted Brunzel to talk to future Minnesota Governor Jesse Ventura about the possibility of unionizing as, quote, the only way to bring some transparency to what everyone was making, unquote. They made one fatal misstep in their embryonic days of exploring unionization. They knew they had to get a big name on board, and that meant recruiting Hulk Hogan. But Brunzel recalled Hogan, quote, wasn't going to rock the boat, unquote. The top wrestling superstar in the U.S. was not about to support a union that could undermine his top-tier pay. Hogan ultimately showed more solidarity to his boss than to his fellow wrestlers, telling McMahon about the union talk among the rank and file, and McMahon made it clear that he would have none of it, and that was the last time anyone seriously considered organizing the wrestlers. Until now, the WWE empire is no longer as invincible as it once was. A sex scandal recently led to the ouster of McMahon, and that has shaken up the corporate leadership. Although McMahon's daughter has succeeded him as chair, the fall of Vince may open up some space for wrestlers to revisit the prospect of unionizing, some 40 years after Jesse Ventura first started talking union with his WWF colleagues. Gill writes that today, quote, workers attest to feeling alienated within the company. They say they feel replaceable and unable to exert any creative influence on the direction of their characters. Instead, they have felt beholden to McMahon and his production team, lest they find themselves out of work. For the wrestlers who are constantly on the road and constantly putting their bodies and minds at risk for the pleasure of fans and for the profits of the WWE bigwigs, Gill writes, many wrestlers believe that a union could provide them with many of the benefits and services that they are not receiving from the company, including healthcare and travel expenses. The union would be the vehicle through which they could change other existing issues, unquote. Just imagine if all the pro wrestlers went on strike, a day without wrestling. Reading the testimonies of current and former wrestlers in this story, I thought back to the wrestlers I watched during my childhood, and I was struck by how ordinary and human these interviewees seemed. Of course, we all know on some level that pro wrestlers aren't the melodramatic, 
gladiators that we see on screen, but it seems to me that as a wrestler, it's perhaps especially challenging to confront the fact that you struggle with the same kinds of issues at work that many other entertainment workers do. Oppressive bosses, volatile work schedules, and the physical strain of performing violently athletic feats in front of huge, rancorous crowds. It's a tough industry to expose your vulnerability in. Pro wrestlers are built up to be larger-than-life figures who can defy gravity, get pummeled relentlessly in match after match, and show superhuman strength. But when it comes to demanding decent treatment and respect at work, their real strength lies in collectively standing up for each other. Perhaps, like many of you, I have been fascinated at a distance by the uprising in Iran. Young women, as well as many others, have taken to the streets demanding justice for Masajina Amini, a Kurdish-Iranian woman who was killed in the custody of the Guidance Patrol, who are often referred to as the Morality Police, for the way she wore her mandatory hijab. As often happens, Americans surely know all about this, the death of one person at the hands of the state sparked a rebellion across society, grief turning into the match that lights a flame that is hard to control. Reports this week that oil and gas workers who labor in the main engine of Iran's economy have gone on strike in support of the protests renewed my interest, but so much of the reporting in the West on Iran is seen through the lens of U.S. foreign policy and that of its allies. So I was pleased to find a piece, though a couple of weeks old, in In These Times, looking at what's happening through the lens of workers, mostly women workers. The piece is titled, Teachers and Other Unionists Are Joining Iran's Gender Justice Uprising, and it's by Alboris Gandahari, an Iranian-American organizer, professor, and poet based in Utah, and it was published September 30th. He writes, quote, What we are witnessing in Iran is a feminist revolt that has sparked a larger anti-government uprising. The current uprising also helps illustrate the centrality of gender justice to working-class struggle. Last week, Kurdish shopkeepers launched a general strike across Iranian Kurdistan in protest of Gina's killing, and some workers and labor unionists across the country are taking action to support the uprising as well. In a statement this week, the Council of Contract Oil Workers said they support the popular struggles against organized and daily violence against women and against poverty, and threaten to withhold their labor if the state does not end its arrests, massacring of people, repression, and harassment and harm of women because of hijab. On September 25th, the Coordination Council of Teachers Unions in Iran threw its weight behind the uprising and launched a two-day strike. The teachers, who have been engaged in a wave of strikes and protests since last December, wrote that the uprising shows Iran is still alive and active and does not bow down in the face of oppression. The council condemned the use of schools in the country as militarized bases to suppress protesters. They called on all working and retired teachers as well as retirees in government, army, and social service sectors, workers' unions, athletes, and artists, to stand alongside the rights-seeking people of Iran. A coalition of women teachers on strike released their own statement declaring, our solidarity with other justice-seeking people and protesters to this crime for which there is no accountability and never will be. End quote. That was, of course, written at least two weeks ago. The Washington Post reported just a couple of days ago that oil workers are beginning to strike in solidarity with the protests and that, quote, the workers' slogans will have been heard by the regime's leaders who need no reminding that strikes by oil workers were decisive in the success of the 1979 revolution, end quote. The oil workers might be at a strategically important location in the Iranian and global economy. And of course, we've talked recently on this show about strikes by oil workers elsewhere at a key moment when oil prices worldwide are high and the global economy is kind of a mess. 
But Gandahari points out that women workers in Iran have also been key in that country's struggles for freedom and justice. He notes that while the leadership in the teachers' unions is overwhelmingly male, the rank and file are majority women, and they have been pushing for a variety of feminist reforms, from the changing of curriculum to the building of more rural schools to the ending of privatization of the public schools. And it's not just the teachers. He writes, quote, In many ways, the slogan of woman, life, freedom that has swept the country's streets in recent days goes hand in hand with the slogan of bread, work, freedom, which emerged during previous nationwide uprisings in Iran against austerity and the high cost of living, both in late 2017 as well as in November 2019 when a gas price increase quickly led to anti-government protests. In November 2017, weeks before the uprising that year, five women workers in the militant Haft Tepe, Sugarcane Workers Union blocked off a road in protest of low and delayed wages, the privatization of their company, and the hiring of workers on exploitative temporary contracts. Actions like these showed the importance of leadership by women workers. These workers are part of a larger Iranian working class that has taken part in an uptick in strikes and labor militancy in recent years from sectors as diverse as petrochemicals, trucking, and heavy equipment. These actions have come as a result of domestic and international crises in global capitalism and the greed of both domestic and foreign elites, end quote. And then there's the connection with the U.S. and elsewhere, as women fight for abortion rights and other equality measures around the world and right here at home. I have landed for the moment back in Louisiana, where abortion is currently illegal and where we also have large oil and petrochemical industries. Solidarity protests with the Iranian uprising have been held in Chile, Lebanon, and Turkey, and Gandahari also notes that American officials cannot for long get away with claiming they support Iranian women fighting for freedom while carrying out policies that have hurt Iranian people. Quote, both Democratic and Republican political leaders have imposed sanctions on Iran which have not weakened the oppressive Iranian regime or economic elite who grow richer and more oligarchic in spite of sanctions. Rather, sanctions have exacerbated Iranians' economic hardships, including straining Iranian women's access to reproductive health care. U.S. foreign intervention has a terrible track record, including the 1953 CIA-led overthrow of the only secular democratic government Iran has ever had in its modern history. Today, rather than the hollow support of the United States and other Western governments, the protests of thousands of everyday people in countries across the world are amplifying Iran's uprising for gender justice, forging connections between movements to lend them meaningful strength and longevity. End quote. So we will keep watching as more and more workers decide to use the levers of power they have and the still potent strike weapon in order to fight back against brutal policing, economic hardship, and gender depression. We could learn a little something for our battles here at home. That is all we have time for this week. Stay tuned for much more on hospitality workers, labor journalism, protests near and far, and of course, all the strikes we can keep up with. Thanks as always go to the folks at Descent for hosting us, to Natasha Lewis and now Colin Kinneborough for editing us, and most importantly, of course, to all of you for listening to us, for sharing us with your friends and on social media, talking about us, writing to us, and sharing your stories with us. We especially appreciate it if you can rate us on Apple Podcasts or whatever app you might be using to get your podcasts. It really does help us to find new listeners, and that helps keep us going. Special thanks once again to all of you who have supported the show financially over the past almost 10 years over at the Descent website or at Patreon, patreon.com slash belabored. 
We really do appreciate your help making it sustainable for us to do labor journalism. As you heard about on today's show, it has been a dying field that we've been desperately trying to revive. And I think we're starting to succeed on that front. But just like the workers we cover, we have not had a raise in quite a long time, and the cost of living has not gotten any cheaper for us here either. So we really appreciate you helping us keep this podcast going. If you want to share your story of working or organizing or not working, you can as always email us at belabored at descentmagazine.org. If you are a museum curator or a Starbucks barista, an oil worker or a gig worker, we want to hear from you. You can tweet at us too at hashtag belabored. Thanks again for everything. Solidarity. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag belabored.